This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called To Boldly Go, What is the Point of Space Exploration? and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2014 at the Barbican in London. Hello everyone, um, welcome to uh, To Boldly Go, uh, What is the Point of Space Exploration? Really glad to be here today, I'm Craig Fernington from the Institute of Ideas, uh, I'll be the chair for this session. Uh, I'm really glad uh, our partner uh, Transport Systems Catapult uh, for this uh, session uh, who've uh, helped, helped make this session happen. So the kind of context of this, this debate, um, you know, it's, it's, it's 45 years since uh, the moon landing, uh, perhaps you know, the height of the space race. Uh, and, and while that you know, one small step uh, really generated a, a, a positive reaction internationally at the time uh, and, and went to inspire a whole swathe of engineers, scientists, uh, other, other people... Um, now perhaps we look at it um, within the context of, of the Cold War uh, and a lot of people now kind of big up the, the aspects of uh, you know, the vanity project aspects of, 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 of that, of the moon landing. Um, so now, you know, moving forward to today, uh, India and China uh, now getting involved perhaps in another uh, space race uh, and particularly uh, with the, the way that the poverty in, in China and India. There's lo- again lots of questions about whether or not space exploration is generally worthwhile, uh, whether or not the money could be spent uh, elsewhere uh, or on perhaps more obviously worthy projects. Um, so you know we're going to chat around these issues. Uh, hopefully we'll uh, get some disagreements. Uh, we'll find out you know if the, there's any point to going into space. Um, I'm really pleased to have with me my, my panel. Uh, on my far right, I have uh, Ashley Dove-Jay. He's a P- PhD researcher at the University of Bristol. Uh, and amongst other things, he's led uh, Astronauts on Mars simulated studies uh, in the Utah desert, which is uh, really cool, uh, I think. Um, right next to me, uh, we have uh, Will Whitehorn. Uh, he's the chairman of Transport Systems Catapult, uh, and he's also former president of Virgin Galactic. So welcome to Will. Uh, on my left, I have Dr. Jill Stewart. Uh, she's a visiting fellow at LSE, and she's also editor-in-chief of the journal Space Policy. Next to Jill, we have uh, Ian Crawford. Uh, he's professor of planetary science and astrobiology at Birkbeck uh, University of London. And last but not least, we have Dave Parks. Uh, he's the principal of East London Science School, uh, and he's the author of the book, What is Science Education For? So those are my panel. Uh, we're going to start, we're going to get some opening remarks on them all before we head out uh, to you, our audience. Um, starting with you, Ashley. Um, so, yeah, I, I lead uh, Astronauts on Mars Expeditions, simulated expedition edition in, in, in Utah uh, with a number of scientists and engineers doing a, a wide range of things, but I'm going to talk more broadly about space exploration rather than delving into that straight away. So if you step back and think about it, it's, it's just crazy to think that governments spend real money on launching things into space. Uh, and it's, it's, e- it's easy enough to, to make the economic rationality behind Earth-focused space vehicles, uh, satellites uh, doing weather forecasting, traffic management, air, sea and land... Uh, disaster management, a whole, a whole wide array of applications that are vital to our way of life today. But 
when we're talking about scientific exploration in terms of two and a half billion dollars spent on the Mars Curiosity rover, trying to make that link between doing that and getting some sort of gain back from it, it's, it's a bit more difficult. Our, but our investment in space exploration has broadened our, our outlook um, from the risks that we face as nation states to those that we face as a species. Uh, our, and our activities have to some extent also equipped us with the tools necessary to protect ourselves from these risks. For example, the state of Venus has demonstrated uh, global warming and greenhouse gases to quite an extent, while Mars has shown us how important our atmosphere is, uh, um, the, the, uh, the ozone layer, the magnetic field. Um, and in recent years, we've just realised how volatile the mood of our nearest star is. Just a couple of years ago, a solar superstorm large enough to cause trillions of pounds worth of damage to the global economy missed us by a very small margin. If our, if our planet was one week further along in its orbit around the Earth, uh, around the Sun, um, we would have likely have experienced the largest natural disaster in recorded history. Our electronics and space-based infrastructures would have su suffered quite a bit. Um, but beyond being a sort of insurance policy, uh, space exploration, uh, for, for humanity... There's more to it than that. The manned spaceflight, as Craig was alluding to earlier, the Apollo era was a tremendous inspiration for that generation. The, the number of students from high school through to PhD in the subjects of mathematics, in the physical sciences, in engineering, that number doubled over the Apollo era and then dropped off again afterwards. Doubling the scientific literacy of your population when you're living in a world so dependent on science and technology was a very good move, and it essentially launched the U.S. into the area of technological dominance it's been in for the last few decades. But space exploration also induces cooperation. As uh, Jean-Jacques Dordian said to me a while ago, space is a collective achievement, uh, you have zero chance of achieving, a, of achieving alone. You have to work with your neighbour. You have to be fully transparent and you have to trust your neighbour. It's such an expensive thing to do today that going alone, you're not going to get very far. Um, and I guess this is best uh, illustrated by the International Space Station. It is essentially the, the physical manifestation of the reunification of the US and Russia and now acts as a based on a more broader international cooperation. But further than that, um, I think Carl Sagan put it most eloquently when he said, in a political context, I maintain that man's place, man's space exploration will serve as the front burner for binding up the wounds of the earth. I think it would be a wonderful thing if the planet named after the god of war could help to increase the peacefulness of the inhabitants of our small and vulnerable planet. But more than a politi political tool, Mars is a planet, and it's, it's a bit of a fixer-upper of a planet. Um, but it, it, it's got the, the, the resources required for a technological civilization, unlike the moon. Um, it's got a nearly a 24-and-a-half-hour... Well, it's got a 24-and-a-half-hour day. It's got seasons. It's got fertile soil. It's got an enormous ocean that's frozen into its soil. And with a relatively small kickstart from us... Mars could go into a sort of self-sustained global warming 
and over the over on, on the order of about a century or two, would stable out, stabilize out at a to, to a sort of planet that is about as warm as the Earth, with large oceans, and with an atmosphere about as dense as what we have in the Himalayas right now. So, Mars also serves as sort of a, an insurance policy for for us in that life is much more likely to survive on two planets rather than the one. Brilliant. Thank you, Ashley. Um, Will? Right. Well, I'm the only person on this panel who's actually built a spaceship. <laughs> uh, and it's not easy. It is, it is rocket science. It's a difficult thing to do. And so why do we bother doing it? I remember being asked that question a long time ago. We have enough problems here on planet Earth. What is the point of going to space? So let's deal with that question first. Let's deal with the question of going to space. Um, regardless of manned or unmanned, um, there is every importance to humanity exploring space. Um, on a daily basis, we now rely on space for our very survival on this planet. There are 7 billion of us living on the planet. And in the last 18 months, we've actually only fed ourselves because of space. And we've only fed ourselves because of a military system called GPS. GPS was only unlocked just under 20 years ago by the US government and nobody really thought what the point of that was because we didn't know what we were going to use it for commercially. What we've ended up using it for commercially is tagging every container of food that goes around the world and making sure they don't spoil in ports anymore and making sure that we can actually feed ourselves. An extra 7 to 8% of food now exists on the planet that gets to people's mouths because of the GPS system over 20 years ago. And if you add to that the agricultural and the weather satellites that are used by farmers, you can add another 6 or 7% to world food production as a result of things that can only be done for us from space in terms of keeping track of ourselves. So that's one of the simplistic arguments about space. It's worth being there in some shape or form. Let's park that exploration of space, the kind of space that we were talking about that Ashley just mentioned, of people going to space. Why can we justify that? When President Kennedy decided to go to the moon in the early 1960s, and he said, we choose to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's difficult, he said that based upon an experience that his father had had, meeting a man called Lee Mallory, who was the, one of the early Everest explorers, who was asked by... Joseph Kennedy, President Kennedy's dad, why he was going to attempt to climb Everest, in an attempt he died in. It was only about 15 years later that Hillary got to, um, Hillary and Sherpa Tenzing managed to get to uh, the top of Everest. And Mallory said that he was doing it because it was there. And I think we as human beings have to do space because it's there. We have to park the issue of whether or not it's morally right to be in space. And we have to follow the precepts of what Stephen Hawking has described as the essential aspect of going to space. And it is the aspect that Ashley's touched upon already. We need to go to space because eventually we will not be able to live on this planet. Not because there's too many of us. Not because we are having an impact on the climate if we are. Not because of any of those reasons, but because planetary events will at some stage wipe us out. In the past 160 years, there's been an event in the 1850s, uh, which you described in, 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 as a type event, an electronic event happened due to a plasma outburst from the sun that actually destroyed all the electronics on Earth that existed in the 1850s. Luckily at that time, during the Victorian Industrial Age, 
the only electronics that did exist on the planet were the Morse code systems that were sending Morse and Telegraph around the world. And they were entirely wiped out by that Carrington event that would have, had we existed in the way we do now, wiped out most of our ability to use electronics on the planet for a considerable period of time. So understanding that alone makes it worth having human beings in space and learning how to protect ourselves in space. But also, as Stephen Hawking said, an event in the next 5,000 years is almost certain to make life difficult on this planet. Be it a cataclysmic event that happens with a, a large volcanic event, or be it a cataclysmic event that happens from space itself. And therefore, we have to learn how to get to space and survive in space. And we can only learn how to do it if we do it. And the problem is, if we just do it with machines at the moment, the kids don't dream about what the future may hold. If we're told hopelessly by cleverer scientists than we are that there's no point us human beings being up there, it's far better to do it with robots and machines, then we lose an aspect of ourselves. We are, as human beings, curious and we want to explore. Therefore, we have to provide some basis for exploration. And we have to build systems that become reliable and can get us into space cheaply and efficiently and can help us in space to feed ourselves on the planet and to cope with the planet and to eventually be able to leave the planet. If we can't leave the planet in numbers, we as a species are almost certainly doomed. As, uh, as was said on Dad's Army once, we're all doomed. Well, we are all doomed. That is the nature of the way the planet Earth works and the nature of the way that human beings, I'm afraid, are within a, an ecosystem structure that is difficult for us to survive through all the events that we know over tens of thousands of years will get thrown at us. So having the second place up there is the insurance policy. Having the ability to get human beings into space is the insurance policy. Having the ability to put more and more technology outside the planet to do things inside the planet is an insurance policy to help us through issues such as our own attempts to use the planet's atmosphere as a large ecosystem hothouse. The biggest thing on the planet now that is producing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, for example, are server farms. They've overtaken everything else. They've overtaken all of human transportation in the planet. And yet they're one of the easiest things to put in space if we had a way to get them up there. And the way to get them up there is cheap and simple space planes that could build large server farms in space. Doing that alone would give us the opportunity, as human beings, to take a bit more care of our planet than we do today, but still be technological. Space exploration is worth it just for achieving something like that, and just for achieving those other laws of unintended consequences. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Will. Um, Jill. <clears throat> right, excuse me. Um, so I thought that I would look at this from the three key questions that I took out of the, the blurb that introduced this. So what is the point of space exploration? Are we potentially facing a new space race? And if we are, do we care, um, as long as there's some good that comes from it? Firstly, I'll say I, I am in favor of space exploration. I can appreciate the benefits of it. But I think we also need to look at the geopolitics behind it. In order to do so, first I'm going to talk a bit about the first space race and then to return to this question of whether or not we're facing a second space race. So why do countries pursue space programs? Well, they demonstrate power and prestige. They demonstrate um, your economic prowess because they're very expensive to undertake. They demonstrate your technological capabilities. They demonstrate your military capabilities because a rocket that may carry a payload of a satellite into outer space can also carry a missile. So you can demonstrate your intercontinental missile 
ballistic missile capabilities by launching something into space. So as we now know, looking back during the Cold War, um, outer space was a way for the Soviet Union and the United States to compete in a cold manner. So uh, the blurb um, on this uh, mentions that 500 million people watched Armstrong's first steps on the moon. And I agree that it was an inspiring and, and moment that we look back upon. But I also want to look at some sort of the counter discourses to how we see this as being idealistic. First of all, not many people realize that prior to deciding to put a human on the moon, uh, Kennedy actually considered nuking it instead. Um, the point was to create a crater on the surface of it that would be visible to the human eye from Earth in order to demonstrate um, our, our military capabilities. Um, also, he uh, um, another point about the, the moon, we have this image of Armstrong with the, the flag. There are actually six American flags on the moon, and there are the flags of five other countries up there as well that have been remotely delivered, i.e. crashed into the surface of it, uh, those being India, the former Soviet Union, the European Space Agency, Japan, and China. So again, I highlight this just to point out that there really is a strong geopolitical context in which space exploration has happened. Also, just a minor point that they left a plaque that said, we came in peace for all mankind, and this was the height of the Vietnam War when the United States was bombing Vietnam. So are we looking at a new space race now? I'm quite uncomfortable with this analogy, and I'm going to say why. Um, not because politics are no longer involved, but because um, I think it's a very different landscape and so it's not very useful to be thinking about it in these terms. Um, firstly, I want to highlight, as previous panelists have, that there's a big difference between practical space activities and those that don't necessarily have obvious spin-offs implications. So really manned exploration and exploration for scientific purposes versus the infrastructure that we now rely on so heavily. Um, we were engaging in some of those sorts of launching satellites for telecommunications and so on during the Cold War, but today those practical, um, that practical infrastructure is incredibly important. We rely on it, I think, more than people realize for financial transactions, telecommunications, global positioning. And so that's something that I think makes it very different, and you have to recognize that countries may have um, those sorts of practical uh, interests in... Um, investing large amounts of money into space. So India, for example, which has been raised as potentially one of these new space race countries, uh, overtly states that a lot of their investment is for development purposes. So in order to be able to monitor their land for agricultural purposes and expand telecommunications into rural areas and so on. Secondly uh, is the diversification of actors. Space is no longer the playground of, of um, simply states. You have multinational corporations who are launching objects into space, nonprofit organizations who are, uh, are interested in space for mining, um, for, for such as the Mars One group that wants to send somebody into, into space. We have tourism. Um, Although I would also add the caveat that a lot of these companies, people are talking a lot about SpaceX, which now supplies the International Space Station for the United States. They do still have large amounts of state backing. So also they're still very much subject to the regulation of the states. Um, outer space law, which developed in the 1960s and 70s, was very much from a state-centric perspective, and I think we're still feeling the effects of that, even though the, the, the types of actors that are in outer space now are changing. So, yes, countries such as China um, stating that they want to land on the moon could be provocative to the United States, also to other countries such as India. I think we underestimate the degree to which this is about a competition between developing countries and wanting to be leaders in the developing countries. Um, but um, 
again, I, I'm uncomfortable with it. Um, and if nothing else, because I think it implies a finish line. In, in retrospect, I think we see the moon landing as the, the end of the first space race. And because I am generally in favor of space exploration, I would l hope that, that there isn't sort of a, an end in sight to these new sorts of activities. But I do think that we need to sort of take an, an ethical um, approach when we think about this, think about where the money for space exploration is coming from, and also what we're going to be doing to these planets that we land on them, because generally I hope that we'll treat them better than we've treated our own planet Earth. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Jill. Um, and Ian. Oh, thank you. So, yes, good afternoon, everybody. Um, so the, 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 cases for, the cases for space exploration, and I think previous speakers have already touched on them, so perhaps I should just summarise. I, I had a list that I sort of made on the tube this morning, and, it's, and they're, they're mostly, most of the points have already been covered. I, I think the, the key thing to recognise is all these arguments that, it, that, in, that would support some investment in space exploration, and which I'll summarise in a minute, uh, are not mutually exclusive. So often you have people pick up on the scientific reasons, the long-term survival reasons, the economic reasons, all of these reasons... But it's very important to realise these are non-mutually exclusive. In fact, they're all complementary. Uh, and investing in space activity is a, is a, is a kind of example where it's a, um, an investment um, which, which is more than the sum of its parts um, because the society has the potential to benefit on multiple levels. So, so my, my half-dozen my half points. So first of all, scientific knowledge. Um, it clearly must be the case that as we get out into space, uh, uh, we will learn more about the universe around us than we would otherwise have done. And so that is partly Im important for just uh, our learning about the world around us. But as Will has said, it's also crucially important for our long-term survival. We have to survive in this universe. The universe doesn't owe us any favours. And so the more we learn about it, the, the a stronger position we'll, we'll be, be in. So that's a scientific um, um, and increasing knowledge reason for wanting to explore, explore the universe around us. Then, as Ashley has said, the, the educational inspirational benefits. So space exploration is exciting to a significant fraction of people, especially young people. If you want to in, in, in stimulate people to take out an interest in science and engineering, then it's not a panacea. There are, there are other things that can stimulate uh, interest in science and engineering, but space exploration is one of those which can contribute. Um, then there are the economic benefits. So, so Will has talked about the, the infrastructure, and so has Jill, and all of this is true. Um, I think we can look at a slightly more long-term, though. So there are short-term economic benefits of... of investing in space exploration, and there are, there are two of those. One is the building up of the infrastructure upon which we all rely. The other is the support of high-technology industry. I mean, this seems quite mundane things, like giving people jobs and stimulating innovation in industry. But space exploration is a relatively um, peaceable way of employing people in aerospace industries and stimulating innovation than many of the other things these aerospace companies would be doing otherwise. And I think there is an argument, uh, uh, just as an aside, for turning, um, turning swords into spaceships, where in fact space exploration could be an alternative for some, sec some sectors of the, the high-technology industry. But looking longer term, um, we live in a solar system really of, essentially, that's infinite in terms of human resources for human, that human um, uh, activity may require. And Will has already mentioned solar, solar energy, and there are many others. I mean, we, we live on a finite planet. Uh, the solar system around us, to all intents and purposes, contains an infinite amount of material resource and energy, which potentially could be available and could open up what is currently a closed planetary economy 
to an external source of energy and raw materials, uh, which is in the longer term may become a, um, a useful asset as human population rises to 10 billion people, all of whom will deservedly and rightly aspire to a reasonably high standard of living. The question will ultimately arise as whether a small planetary economy can support all this. Well, we needn't be a small planetary economy if we invest in the, the infrastructure of space exploration because there is an infinite universe out there potentially available. That was, that's the third point. The fourth point, geopolitical. Jill talked about the geopolitical aspects. But there is one, the Cold War was, the, ge the key geopolitical driver of space exploration during the Cold War was a competition. The key geopolitical driver in favour of space exploration today is the opposite. It's cooperation. So there are 15 nation states, including the US and Russia, who are cooperating on the International Space Station. I think it's clear that all future large-scale space exploratory activities, such as returning to the moon or going to Mars, will be international endeavours. They'll be very high-profile international endeavours, and therefore they provide a... Um, a um, demonstration of what different nation states with different political systems and different cultures can actually achieve all working together. So that's not a panacea for peace on earth, but it is a positive step, a positive example, the kind of example we need more of probably. And international space exploration will contribute, can contribute to that wider geopolitical objective. Then the fifth point is long-term survival. Will has already talked about that. It's not that we have to wait billions of years for the sun to become a red giant, although it will eventually, but on, on, on far shorter timescales, supervolcanoes, asteroid impacts, all of these things are potential dangers. And it is just the case that a humanity spread out on several planets must be more secure than a humanity living on one planet against all of these possible dangers. Um, there is also, and Will, I think, did touch on it, the danger that we are to ourselves. Um, I mean, human beings, we don't, obviously, we're, in some respects, we're our own worst enemies. And often we try and get kicks out of doing things which are quite dangerous. Um, and it would be good to have a safety valve for some of those energies. I mean, this is William James's moral equivalent, finding a moral equivalent to war argument. Um, but I think Bertrand Russell actually put it, put it best when he wrote um, uh, in one of his books that uh, if the world is ever to have peace, then we must find ways of having adventures which are non-destructive as a safety valve for human energies and, and arguably human aggression, or at least the human need for excitement. Um, and I think this is just part of human nature. We can try and deny it, but, but it's there. Um, and, and so if we have a, a space exploration, if nothing else, can provide... It is a non-destructive source of adventure. It's not the only one. It's not a panacea, but it is a one that we could weigh with all the other potential benefits of space exploration I've alluded to. And then finally, the last one is perspective. I mean, the, the fact that as humanity moves out into the universe, we look back, we saw, we call the Apollo 8 image of the first picture of the Earth from the moon, and you see, see the Earth as an island in space. By the time you go to Mars, the Earth is just a little dot in the, in the night sky. Um, and this, this perspective that shows that all of human beings living on this one planet, um, we, we really have to make it work together, because the cosmic context shows that we're all alone on this little planet, which is easy. We all know intellectually this is true, Getting out there and looking back makes that, um, makes that perspective more real. So there are all these reasons for wanting to invest in space exploration, but the point is they're not mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. They all 
um, all have these benefits that you can add that the cumulatively add together, all for a cost of. So I know I'm out of time. Currently, the world the world's um, space budget is is currently co- comes in at about I worked it out last night 0.06 percent of the gross world product. So you've got all these potential benefits: economic, political, inspirational, long-term survival, investment in the future of the world economy, and it's all for 0.06 percent. 0.06% of the gross world product. So, so I think, in my view, that, that probably is an investment that's worth making. Brilliant. Thank you, Ian. Uh, Dave. OK. Um, I find myself sort of slightly um, disturbed by the sort of tenor in which we're arguing for uh, space exploration, if that's what we're arguing for, um, because I find it uh, comes across in quite a negative, constrained way. Uh, at least from a couple of the contributions. And to me, that reflects a broader point about the historical narrative about rewriting history (coughs) in terms of the way that we understand the original space race as a kind of result of a Cold War conspiracy, um, which was driven by the need to show off between two uh, nation-states. And that, to me, I, I think, reflects not so much what happened but the way we view it now um, and I think the way we view space exploration is the way we view ourselves in, in, in that respect it, it, there's a reflection of the way uh, our perspective on ourselves so um, so I, I was going to try and uh, sort of look, look at the original um, space race and try and unpick it a little bit but I'm kind of more tempted to, to look at the sort of pessimism of that we need to get into space before we, we wipe ourselves out um, is a kind of not the most inspiring way to say we should spend money on something um, because you might say, well, what's the point? Give up. It's not going to work. It's unrealistic. You're not going to pull it off anyway. Um, and that fits in uh, with a kind of more general sort of pessimism uh, in terms of the way that um, green politics affects a lot of the ways that we understand ourselves in terms of the way that uh, we look at the limited nature of the earth, uh, its resources and so on which was why I actually really like what you were saying at the end, because the, the uh, counter to that is the fact that, uh, I think you put it really well, that, is that the solar system is a darn sight bigger than we think it is and is capable of unlocking potential that people are missing in the whole argument about sustainability and green politics when they deal with it in the day-to-day, whether it's about oil or whatever other resources it is. Space could potentially do something absolutely unbelievably big to our capacity to, to do anything we wanted to. Um, and I think uh, that gives a lie to the fact that we should, we should not be justifying space exploration on the basis of the need to protect ourselves from the doom that we're going to inflict on ourselves, but more about the potential we have to unlock things. So when you, when you look back in history to you know, the original space race, which was a kind of slightly different to the way you put it about um, rockets being missiles and that's why people develop uh, rockets. It was the way uh, I think it was put in the BBC uh, documentary on the cosmonauts was the, the way that uh, the uh, Russians or the Soviets at the time managed to get uh, the satellite up is because they built a, sat- uh, a rocket that was supposed to take a, an atom bomb into, up into uh, a continental ballistic missile it was too damn big and it wasn't going to work. So they had a load of rockets they couldn't use. So the guys in charge, 
Korolev uh, and his team decided to mess about with sticking things into space instead, which is what he actually wanted to do. In other words, um, you know, there's a fortuitous mistake that allows you to do something, uh, which is about really taking our capacity to take our technology to its limits and explore uncharted territories in ways that we didn't know what effect it was going to have. And before you know it, all hell's broken loose and everybody thinks um, that the Soviets have found some crazy technology that's going to take over the world when they just put a radio bleeper into space. Mm -hmm. But what they did was caught everybody's imagination alight, which then drove this thing into a different place. And yes, it gets replayed as a competition in terms of the Cold War and the rest of it. But I don't think that that's the best way of looking at it because what it does is it uh, destroys the achievements that were actually made at those times, which were over a very short space of time to completely transform the technology that we have available to do whatever it is we want. And they didn't know what they were doing with it. They just were playing, in effect, trying to do something that then became... Uh, it did become a, a matter of national prestige. Um, but, the, w w but even going back to that, if you look at you know, Gagarin, um, who uh, uh, amazingly survives a very short trip into space, he becomes a hero, not to the Soviet Union, as it then was, but to the world, and sets alight the ambitions of everybody in terms of what we can potentially do, which is when, you know, which fits in with your uh, kind of uh, aspirations for how we could use the, the solar system as a massive resource on unlimited uh, scales. That kind of inspirational perspective, I think, is what we should really be trying to take from the history uh, and advocacy of space exploration. And then there's all the quirky bits um, where, where it obviously wasn't even on the US side about the Cold War. So when they sent Voyager up, I mean, that's Star Trek. You know, that's a Star Trek show in reality, sending up a spaceship to go right through the solar system and out into nowhere with a diagram of a human being on it. I mean, so that, that kind of thing is, uh, you know, shows the potential we have to do things that are not driven by some conspiratorial uh, desire to compete with our competitors or even our own sense of our own limitations and, and doom and gloom, but the potential we have to uh, really aspire to do something completely different. Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. Um, so I think lots of interesting things to start. So first I'll just address, actually, just I guess what Dave just said there before we head out to the audience. I mean, uh, Ashley, Will, um, do you think maybe when you're talking about supervolcanoes and asteroids from space, I mean, is, is that a bit of a turn-off for people? Do you think that's too negative when you're thinking about how you might ach uh, you know, achieve uh, space exploration? No, no, not at all. I, mean, I actually agree entirely with the points made about um, uh, the Cold War you know, being, in one sense, a catalyst for what happened in the space race, but in another sense, it was almost irrelevant at the same time, in that... Um, once the imagination was lit in 1957 by Sputnik, it was a touch paper that couldn't be put out by the fact that actually there was an ICBM background to intercontinental ballistic missiles, but it transcended that completely. And I, I agree entirely with your point. And I feel very sorry for you because you really agree with the idea of space exploration, but somebody's got to put up the argument against it. And of course, the kind of uh, military-industrial complex argument against space exploration is one that we have inherited. It's a dialogue we've inherited. And I don't think it is that relevant anymore, but it's one that has to be explored. Um, I 
I really agree with aspects of what we've all said today. We all, in you know, we all have a, a scientific background of one sort or another, or historical background of one sort or another, that leads us as individuals on this panel to want to dream. Number one, that's what people want to do. The negative aspect of it that I have to, in a five-minute, um, you know, monologue, mention some of the good reasons that Stephen Hawking believes we need to be in space in that there's a chance we'll be wiped out, so that alone is justification. doesn't mean to say that's the reason I want to be in space. I mean, I, you know, I've wanted to be in space since I was a kid, and I have no rational explanation for that, apart from my mother in Edinburgh going, oh, Willie, yes, you'll go to space one day, because that's what <laughs> nine-year-olds were told in 1969, and it's stuck in my mind ever since. So the fact I'm going to get a chance to go up in a spaceship in a couple of years' time and be the first Scotsman in space is something that, I can't rationally tell you it's going to be for the betterment of mankind that I'm doing it, which I think is to, to your argument to some extent, and I agree with you. But I think we have to understand the reasons why it's important, the hawking reasons, I'll call them, for the purposes of this conversation, are that we can't be confident that we can solve our problems on planet Earth by not going to space. And that's an argument that all of us on this panel would want to nail straight away. Because there are people who still argue, and I've heard it done quite recently at, a, at a, one of these open kind of green, in fact, it was, forums, where people were saying, it is wrong to be in space when we've got seven billion people on the planet of whom a billion might be starving. And you can't stand up and say, hang on, you're wrong about that, because there'd be two billion starving if we weren't in space. So it's, it, it is important to have the negatives as well as the positives. But I'm a personal believer in the positives for going to space. I think we should go to space because we want to explore. Mm. And it's a proxy for humanity having the very ideas of civilization that go back thousands of years into our history are about having these things to dream of. And if we don't have them and we cut those off, um, then you basically uh, take the lifeblood out of us. And once you do that, then you do get back to these very negative arguments. And those are ones that we need to nail. But we just need to bear in the back of our minds that that supervolcano is round the corner yeah. and that plasma event is round the corner and therefore that's another good reason for doing it. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I want to touch on something you just, just mentioned there uh, and anybody feel free to tackle this, but you kind of said it started a kind of fire that didn't go out. But, you know, obviously the first moon landing was, was a very, very exciting event. The fire went out I, for a I, while. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean what happened That's, then? Why, I think why, you why might did know people, much... You, well, you too, having probably done I mean, more why, research. Why, why, why did people uh, kind of fall out of love, love with it? I mean... You, the, the fire went out for a while because people got bored with the Apollo missions going back and forth and back <laughs> and forth to the moon, and there was nothing new happening. And also, actually, science itself made a bit of a mistake in the 80s because science developed a consensus that we'd be better doing this with robots because it would mm. save money. And, and that was a mistake. And that was a I mistake that science that's demonstrably in, you know, an incorrect view, but you're right. For a while, the scientific community did go down. It was the late 80s, if I remember rightly, mm. that this happened, when the shuttle was all going a bit wrong, and, people were, and so much NASA budget was just going into the shuttle that NASA itself spurned this debate, mm. or spewed this debate out, which would be a better way of putting it. I think uh, also it's, um, one way to look at it is uh, uh, I can't remember which anniversary it was of the original moon landings, but the the, the crew were brought together and asked what do they thought about the, uh, the return to the moon, and they said, well, well, we should have gone to Mars. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have gone to the moon. We should have gone to Mars. In other words, the ambition was curtailed the moment they 
they stepped on the surface of the moon. Um, and you, you mentioned it in terms of that end point thing. So the way it's understood is like, oh, OK, we've succeeded, that's it, forget it now. So we've done what we set out to achieve. So that's, in a sense, a, a short-term political goal that curtailed the uh, desire to, to take the thing further and, and the possibility of doing that. And it's taken an awful lot of time to pull that back. And you could then say part of the reason for that is that the US was distracted by everything else it was involved in at the time. Um, but putting that back on the agenda is something we should be doing very, very loudly. We should be doing loudly now. And the argument for going to Mars is really, really good, positive and really strong and possible as well. There is one little thing none of us have touched on yet, which I think is worth... The audience might be surprised by this, but the UK alone is a world leader in space, and it doesn't really know that it is. So the space industry in this country, some of you may not know this, employs nearly 60,000 people. Last year at a turnover of £9 billion, of which about £2 billion were exports. And in fact, we employ nearly as many people as we do in car manufacturing, in, in space industries in the UK, and in space science that's commercial. And from the UK's point of view, we, were, we as a government, at a governmental level and, again, a scientific level, were very negative by the 1980s about space. Civil servants in this country, as part of their kind of strategy of decline for the UK, actually didn't believe that, for instance, we should be building satellite launch vehicles, even though we'd built one of the best ones that had ever been created by 1969-70. And we also... So we created a kind of culture of negativity about the idea of humanity in space, which was a little bubble of negativity just in Britain. We've got, we've got over that now, which is a good thing. That's what I was going to finally say. I'd say barely, because uh, the, U the UK government spends the equivalent on space as, as to what it does on gastric band surgery and treatment through the NHS. Um, yes, the, the, there are uh, at least 30,000 directly in the space sector in the UK. That contributes per capita, about £150,000 to GDP, return on investment to the government. And that's about six times more than your average person in the country, which is, which is amazing. And you'd think that the government would invest more in directing these sort of lucrative activities, but it doesn't. It, it, it falls woefully behind other developed nations <coughs> in terms of government spending. Coming from the private sector, you see, I tend to think that's maybe why our space industry has been quite successful because it's been ignored by the government for long enough <laughs> to give it a chance to succeed. Um, but you, 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 make a, you make a valid point. But, I mean, we do now have a government that's prepared to, and I don't mean a government in terms of this coalition, but I also mean the previous government and the one before that. They've finally woken up to this, and at least they're prepared to create circumstances to help the industry thrive. I mean, I am delighted that we're now talking governmentally about legislation for space launch and the concept of maybe even having a spaceport here. Things that you would never have achieved with a government only 10 years ago. Mm. I think thanks to the previous science minister and the one before him, we've actually got really a, a, a ground base now whereby the civil servant side of it in Britain is less negative about space. But you're right, there is still that aspect to, to the way that government looks at space. I want to come in. I think it's funny we've gone back now to talking about um, in individual countries. So I realize I am much more cynical than I, I had, had previously thought. But I just want to point out that the International Space Station was brought up twice as cooperation and, and Ian's point that we've moved from being competition to cooperation. But, um, well, the International Space Station was originally named Space Station Freedom and was in, very much intended to be in competition to 
uh, the Soviet Union's mirror. After the Soviet Union collapsed, then they brought Russia on board, and it very much was important in, in building those ties. But just to point out that Russia has just decided that they're going to pull out of the International Space Station because of the conflict with uh, Ukraine. And also, it's, very been, it's been very explicit that China has not been allowed to become partners in the International Space Station because of the United States' um, qualms with, with that country. And so they're building their own. And so they're building their own. Yeah. <coughs> Good. Um, what I'm going to do now is um, I'm going to get the audience involved. Um, so if you have any questions or points, it doesn't need to be a question. Uh, see your hand. Uh, we've got some microphones there. So um, if you want to start uh, taking it up the back there, um, the gentleman there. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I want to um, just echo a point that David was making and um, implore you to stop justifying this on the grounds of survival or whatever, uh, yeah, yeah, or, or what the benefits are going to be for us in the short term and all of that, because... I think you're on a sticky wicket if you do that. Because I think the problem that we've got today is there in, in broad, more broadly in society is a real lack of ambition in what can be achieved through science in particular. I mean, today we have the precautionary principle now being enshrined in, in a lot of the research that we do. We have the top companies in America that are quoted on the stock exchange have between them six to seven trillion dollars in cash not being invested in research and development and and, 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 and you know there are statistics that are just startling. You know, Americans spend more on potato crisps than the federal government invests in R and D. And the reason for that is because I think we've lost faith in research and the whole notion of research for the sake of research. And I think you made the point about unexpected outcomes, that we're very uncomfortable with unexpected outcomes, that we want everything regulated and we want, everything to, we want to know what the outcomes are going to be before we actually do that. So I think if we want to win this battle, and I think it is a battle for the future about ambition – then we've got to stop hedging our bets and we've got to defend the principle of unexpected outcomes and research for the sake of research. The other part to Kennedy's speech was not that it was just difficult, but that in the quest of doing that, we would discover things that we didn't know. And that's the point, really, isn't it? I mean, that's what we've got to be defending. Forget about all these other things, because once you do that, you're then competing with other ifs and buts. You're competing with, uh, with lowering of expectations of what we can achieve as, 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 as human society. And I think that, that once you, you've, you give that ground, I don't think you, you've got a, a leg to stand on, especially in space. Thank <laughs> <laughs> um, you. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to make uh, – I wanted to ask a question and kind of make a point. Um, and the question is about the inspiration for science. And I just wondered if, if any of the panel know whether the, the kind of inspiration that we get from space exploration to science is self-feeding in a sense that it, it just inspires interest in space science or whether it, it inspires interest in science in the wider context. And the point I just wanted to make is to pick up on something Ian said, which is about space exploration projects being internationally inclusive and international projects, notwithstanding what you said. Um, I think that's very important. I think that's a really key issue because... The other big high-profile projects that countries get involved in is bombing the shit out of small countries. So that's really important. Thank you. Um, I'd pass it along to the gentleman here, please. Thank you. Thanks. Um, there are a lot of misconceptions about spending money on space. There are so many myths involved here. Um, uh, when 
inhabitants of the USA were asked how much is, uh, NASA's budget is, they all always quote 20 to 25%. It's closer to 0.6%, and actually the Defense Department spends uh, the same amount of money in two to three weeks uh, in the USA. Um, but um, uh, the, other, the other myth is about uh, public spending on space. Of the, uh, Roughly, we heard a figure of uh, the percentage of GDP globally, uh, the global figure, I think, is 400 billion s expenditure on space now, of which 87% is from private sources. <coughs> Only 13% is from government sources. Um, but if we look back at, at uh, the idea of spending money on space, like Apollo, uh, I think there was an economic um, institute which estimated that the spin-offs and feedback into the economy, uh, technology and so on, of uh, Apollo has been seven times what was initially invested. Yeah. So d do you think that government should be spent you know, putting up the proportion of their GDP that they do spend in space? Should it not be a, a real investment that they have to make? I mean, I, I personally think, uh, yes, it should, <laughs> and, there, and there are these spin-offs, and the key thing to recognise is that the money doesn't go into space, right? So even the public expenditure on space, the money doesn't get put on a big rocket and get launched. The money goes <laughs> stays, is, the, the money is spent employing people for the most part and developing technology on the ground where it cycles through the economy and has positive, positive benefits, as you said. And there was such a study, and the multiplier is about seven. But I don't... So, so I think there are good, these good reasons for governments seeing space as an investment and, and strong arguments that, that should lead them to increase the amount they invest in space exploration. But I don't think that should be seen as being at the expense of the private sector. I think well, the most positive thing that's happened in the last uh, decade or not, decade and a half is the growth of the private space industry. Um, because it's not it, it, what we could have here is the opportunity for a, a partnership between public and private money, which will public and private investment, which will frankly be able to achieve much more than would um, one or other sector operating on, on their own. So I think absolutely we need to see more uh, in, and encourage as, we, as much as possible private private activities in commercial activities in space. So Jill wants to say something. Yeah, well, I was just thinking. Um just a couple of thoughts. First of all, on um, bringing up inspiration, I think it's uh, Demos did a study a few years ago, and I, th I don't know if it was based on, a, I think it was maybe a Maury poll, but um, basically the conclusion was that the public finds spin -off, the spin-off argument quite dull. <laughs> so the suggestion of the, of the study was to not focus on that for inspirational purposes, but having said that, if you're a specialist, then you, you know, may be more aware and appreciative of what the spin-offs have been. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention was, um, it's, yes, so, um, people grossly overestimate what they think NASA's budget is, but just also point out um, NASA's I'm assuming you're talking about NASA's budget as being 0.6. So NASA has the largest space budget in the world. The second largest space budget in the world is the U.S. military. Um, I'll take some more questions uh, back out again. So there's a uh, lady just across the aisle from you. Yep. Um, I understand that there's a group working on um, generation ships. I think they're loosely associated with the British Interplanetary Society. I just wondered... Um, what you thought of interstellar travel. I don't think it will be me. Um, maybe not our children, maybe not our grandchildren. At what stage do you think interstellar travel is a serious thing and will we soon uh, be able to do it? I, 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 think, I think it's a long way off and it's kind of out of the frame of this discussion because it probably is centuries away. But it speaks to what the gentleman said at the back about aspiration, right? In terms of the long-term aspiration of a human future in space, then you know, there's a lot to do 
in the inner solar system and building up the infrastructure. And, and, but, but in the longer term, but I think you are talking centuries away, then I, I personally think, yes, there will be a case for interstellar space exploration because most of the arguments, certainly the scientific arguments, that you advance for sending spacecraft to explore Mars will ultimately apply to exploring these planets that are now being discovered around other stars. So I think that, and in terms of aspiration, I mean, the gentleman who, wrote, who was the first to speak, actually, I mean, I, I, I certainly agree very much with what he says about the, 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 the aspirational aspects. It's just that I don't think that's, they're not mutually exclusive <laughs> uh, with the, the other sort of near-term, more mundane aspects. We need them both. But if you, want, if you want aspiration and inspiration and you keep your eye on the horizon then the ultimate end of space... Well, it's not an end. It goes on forever, right, the universe? So, 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 so eventually, interstellar space exploration would be there in the mix, but it is, it is a long way away. The technical challenges are really daunting. I mean, we haven't got back to the moon yet. It, it is the inspiration, though. I remember at the age of 10 being allowed to stay up to watch Star Trek for the first time in colour. Um, and... Uh, I spent years after that trying to understand if it was actually theoretically possible to travel in an interstellar sense and finally working out, obviously, some considerable period of time later that it was, that, you know, Star Trek was a, was a theoretical possibility. It, it, it inspired the rest of my life, I suppose, to some extent. And I think that we have to believe that it's possible and we have to know that the theoretical science, which has developed so much over the last 40 or 50 years which has led us to a place of knowing that it's theoretically possible to do it, is what inspires this generation of quantum physicists, for example. And I'm sure that it inspires every aspect of some of the new science which is coming about in every area from astrobiology right the way across to particle physics. So, yes, we, we kind of know it's theoretically possible, and yes, Ian's right, it's not definitely in my lifetime or any of this panel's lifetime. In fact, if we added up all of our collective ages together, you're probably looking at the beginnings of it at the end of all of that kind of time but, but period. But it's still something we can work towards. Yes, yeah. you know. But how long have we actually been able to get off the ground? Only how long has it taken for us to sort of develop from the very first crude flying machine to getting to the moon? And then well, what's happened years. in between? 111 years. Yeah, but there's a big gap between getting to the moon and now, where we seem to have abandoned the, the task, if you like, that sets before us to push it further. Uh, and, you know, no, no one sort of uh, said, oh, OK, we've, we've managed to spend uh, half an hour in, uh, in, in flight, let's, let's wait for 50 years before we take it any further. So, um, and you, if you look at the history of aviation in this country, um, we get supersonic travel in the 70s, uh, where is it now? So there's, there's a lot of things that we've done and achieved which we seem to have drawn a halt to. And the, the fact that NASA now doesn't have a vehicle that can get astronauts up uh, says something about that lack of ambition. Um, and justify, you, you asked where, where, what hap happened to it, why, why did that happen? I think there are an awful lot of reasons to that, but some of them uh, are about the fact that we look at ourselves and don't think we're capable of it. And that, writ large politically, means that the attempt to justify anything has to be couched in instrumental terms. It's going to stop the global warming or this, that or the other, rather than it's there to be done. 
Actually. Yeah, a couple of points to pick up on over the last five minutes. Um, I'd say that we haven't stopped doing stuff in space. It's just we sort of lack direction. It was initially, this is our goal. And now we've got a, a various other aspects of space that we're tapping into, more Earth-focused. Um, a, a point that I think you made earlier was uh, space exploration, uh, manned space exploration, does, does it inspire kids and whatnot? Uh, th there are a number of studies out there that show that, in particularly manned space flight, uh, is the number one driver for pushing kids into STEM subjects. And maybe most of them won't end up in a, a relevant to space field, but this, we're still going to be upping the scientific literacy of the population. And uh, something uh, the other gentleman over there said uh, about uh, the NASA budgets, the equivalent of a couple of weeks' worth of the U.S. defense spending. Um, well, in fact, a, a, pro, a program, or sort of a draft paper put together by NASA a couple of decades ago for a manned mission to Mars, the, the cost of such a program, the architecture behind it all, building the spacecraft and launching that first mission, they, they gauged that at about $50 billion in the 90s, uh, which itself is equivalent to maybe a month worth of the U.S. defense spending. And when you think there's been a 1,000 weeks between that proposal being put together and today, why haven't we done it? The technology is, is a question, but it's, it's, a, it's a case of making the nuts fit the bolts. There, there are no unknowns, really. It's, it's something we can do. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a couple more questions okay. first. Of start. Uh, so the, the lady here. Oh, one of the most inspiring images, and certainly one of the most enduring for this year, um, for me was around September when... Um, we saw the female scientists um, from India who la landed the Mars orbiter successfully high-fiving each other with um, uh, comments on Twitter about how simultaneous debates about whether women could drive or not um, were raging um, around some of the um, uh, Asian um, countries at the time. And it just kind of, um, to me, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a new age of politics here, you know, particularly with the recent Nobel Peace Prize to Malala Yousafzai. Um, so I think that, you know, we have, whilst we have a long history of, um, you know, the techno-military-industrial war complexes um, uh, uh, kind of dominating the political agenda, I think now with Chris Hadfield um, and the kind of the incredible educational um, outreach that he's had and some of these um, amazing images of, uh, you know, transformational social events you know, I'm really hoping that a new politics is written, you know, through this medium, and I think it could be an incredibly powerful um, one. India is uh, uh, really under the radar when it, it shouldn't be. I mean, in terms of the percentage of their uh, government spending, they're third in the world for investing in space after the U.S. and Russia. And it's, it's, their recent probe, the MOM, the MOM probe, is, is actually quite exciting in that uh, it's got some really cool instruments on board, in particular something that's going to be mapping out where sources of methane are coming out of Mars. So there was a, I think it was an Italian uh, instrument of some form a few years ago, managed to spot methane coming off Mars, and it was apparently in, coming out in seasonal uh, releases. There's only two sources of methane, either it's a geochemical process or it's a biological process. And one of these instruments on this, uh, on this probe that's just settled into orbit around Mars, the Indian spacecraft, is going to map exactly where this methane is coming from, i.e. it's going to pave the way for, right, if we're looking for life, this is where we need to go. Uh, yeah, India's great. Yeah. <laughs>
the gentleman uh, with the microphone. So we've been talking a bit about how there's um, a lack of enthusiasm or you know, a lack of funding from governments for space travel. There have been uh, quite a lot of recent uh, proposed ideas, uh, privately funded space travel, things like Mars One, so huge ambitious. I was just wondering uh, your opinions as to how important will privately funded space uh, missions be in the future for, um, for actual scientific understanding? Thanks. Or, you know, is it just a gimmick? Or um, and can we have the gentleman just in front of you as well, and we can come back to that. The one thing I hate about Star Trek is that they always go boldly go to the past. Every time you go on a, watch Star Trek, they go to some place that's doomed, right? <laughs> and that's how I feel a bit about the conversation, because you know, I'm quite enthusiastic about space. I don't, but I'd like to, to consider this question: how you can do, the, have your cake and eat it, right? Like promote the Mallory vision, and at the same time, at the back of your mind, say, I'm escaping doom, or we're all doomed. Right? I don't think you can do that. I'll give you an example. I went to a science um, um, festival in Derbyshire, and the loads of kids. And for about two days, they've been told, you know, space travel is risky, you know, precautionary principles everywhere. They were really, um, but, but there's also stuff about going to space. So we had a debate, and once they got over that, right, you said to the, I said to them, how many of you would go to Mars if you had the chance? And every single hand went up. So I thought, I'll test out what they think. What if you died, right, or you're likely to die? And every single hand went up. Right? So you know, if you want to tap into visions, you can't do it because you know, it might improve the life for women or it might do this. You've got to really stick to that Mallory principle and with no ifs or buts, really, if you really want to inspire a future generation. Yeah, and the only, I was going to say a quip, but perhaps you could spot your place with Alex Salmon, but that's a bit passe, you know. <laughs> <laughs> on a one-way ticket. Um, just, just quickly on the, private, on the private aspect of this, having worked on a private space project, one of, the, one of the good things about Star Trek is the fact that people like Bill Gates and Paul Allen and Jeff Bezos and Sergey Brin all loved watching it. And um, that has meant that you have got an enormous wall of Silicon Valley money that's interested in space. Now, it's partly interested in space commercially, so you could come back to the more negative things. It's interested to make money because Google do realise that you can put server farms in space and it be long-term might be a very good solution to a lot of the problems with server farms. However, these people are also doing it for the Mallory principle because it's there and because they're excited by it. Paul Allen funded the original Spaceship One that won the X Prize in 2004, and he did it because he wanted to do it. And then uh, I actually went to negotiate buying the rights to that spaceship and trying to turn it into a commercial project. Um, you've got people like Jeff Bezos doing a private space project. You've got Elon Musk, who's developed SpaceX, as, long as, as well as developing his Tesla car project and having worked on PayPal. And the good thing about these people is that many of them have got a lot of resource and they can begin to rival the kind of resource that the state sector has had to put into space in the early days. And if we're going to get to Mars, I'd say it's as likely to be, and I think we are going to go to Mars, and I think it's likely to be a private-public partnership that goes to Mars eventually. There'll be people who'll be putting up venture capital money for the idea of you know, space mining of some sort, um, and there will be also people alongside that who want to volunteer to go on a one-way trip. They'll be like those kids who put their hands up twice. I mean, if somebody said to me today, we can actually, you can get to Mars, Will, 
and we do need the odd person in their 50s with a heart attack, um, then, but, you know, you've got to bank on not coming back. I would definitely go. I've got two grown-up kids. They're grown up now. And I would definitely, definitely volunteer for that trip. And it will be eventually. The, I do think the first mission to Mars will be one that it itself, there'll be a prospect of returning, because the second mission will be back. But I think the first mission will probably be people who are prepared to stay there and wait and actually sustain themselves there, because it's got to be the more cost-effective way to do it. And, you know, when the, when, the, when the original Pilgrim Fathers sailed out from the United Kingdom to go to the United States, or when those people explored um, in uh, Polynesia in the 5th and 4th century AD, they didn't go from island to island or across the ocean with the prospect of coming home again. They went with the prospect of staying there. Otherwise, those missions, if you want to call them that, would never have happened. And therefore, I do think we need to think about the inspirational approach of going to Mars, thinking about it as a private-public partnership in the future, and think about it as a one-way trip. Not with Alex Salmond, I hasten to add. <laughs> Jill, did you... Um, yeah, a couple, a couple of thoughts. Uh, again, I feel like I'm going to be a bit negative here, but um, it's a shame that that person left because I thought she made a very good point, and I'm not sure if she was specifically making a gender point, but um, I do work on gender. And just to say, um, I met two female astronauts a couple of weeks ago at the uh, International Astronautical Congress, and um, the women in space um, movement is really building, but I think there's a long way to go. Just I know the Voyager is very inspirational, but it, one, one note about the uh, disc that was on the front of it was that um, there was a man who was a, a, a male figure that was very aggressively sort of this way, and then a female figure that was turning away. And so I know that, that um, there's been discussions about this and that they're trying to redress the way that we potentially project ourselves. Um, so that was a general point. Um, I was curious with the panel, going back to this idea of interstellar travel and going to Mars and that sort of thing, is there not an, an ethical question, though, about whether or not we have the right to do this? I'm reminded of a, of a joke that um, goes, there's two planets, and one planet says to the other planet, you don't look so well. And the planet says, yeah, I've got homo sapiens. And then the other planet says, well, don't worry, I've heard they don't last long. I mean, are we automatically entitled to be able to go and do this? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, what we do with it is up to us. Um, so if we argue amongst ourselves whether we do it this way or that way, that's our choice. But uh, I think it would be absolutely ridiculous to say that there's some kind of extra out there authority saying, don't mess up my planet, thank you. Uh, what if there's other, other life on it? Let's go meet destroy? them. Let's go meet them. Right. I think that uh, life is probably the most uh, incredible thing that we've come across in, 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 in the universe. And to, to stay stuck on the one planet and uh, risk eventual, an eventual cataclysm, sorry to come back to that, to, to risk the, an event wiping it out would be a shame because I, I think we should see, see ourselves as the consciousness of the universe. Uh, you know, the, the, the universe has finally evolved to this point where it's got conscious life. And what's cool about the universe? Life. Let's try and spread life. So I guess the only thing is we, we don't know how, um, how common life else, elsewhere in, in the universe is. I mean, the question was an ethical point. And I, I think it is. I think it is. I mean, there are... I think there is some, some depth to that question. I don't think you can just... just if, you, if we were to discover that Mars had its own ecosystem, I don't think... I think that should... We should pause at that point before we decide whether we're going to terraform Mars. If, if Mars turns out not to have its own indigenous 
um, e e ecosystem or any indigenous life, then of course there's no reason why we shouldn't terraform Mars. So the situation is, we're and, and in fact ethical reasons why we should, for spreading life, as you say. So, but I think the thing is, we can't make these decisions are based on ignorance. We have to find out. We have to find out whether there's life on Mars or not, whether there's life on Titan or not, whether there's life on Alpha Centauri or not. And, and then we can make these informed decisions. And the way we find out is to get out into the universe and explore. And then we'll have answers to these questions. And then they will inform what um, ethical or, or moral judgments need to be made. But I do think they will be there. I don't think you can just suddenly say, here's a planet with its own life, therefore, I mean, therefore even, we're even going to, we're going to Trek, take it to be over fair anyway. To Star Trek, um, there is the prime directive, hmm. which is, to your point, you know, that is about not interfering with the life on other planets. Although they, which they, they go, promptly go and do. <laughs> I don't know if you do watched it, it but that's what they do. <laughs> they go uh, and say, we're not going to interfere, but we do. Yeah, exactly. And we're human really beings, human. that's what we do. I mean, yeah. so what you're saying to us is, don't be human, just stay off space, because you might disturb it. It's bizarre. Right, argument. So I think yes, we need, an we, need an ethic we need an ethical we need an ethical argument very badly because I think uh, if not, we'll trap ourselves in a situation where we won't be able to act. I think what, what, I, what I'm saying is it's slightly premature. What we what we need to know, we don't yet know whether life whether this is the only life on this planet is the only life in the universe, or whether life is in fact very common. We do, we still do not know an answer to that fundamental question. So it's quite important that we find it out. Uh, and space exploration is a means of finding an answer to that question. I mean, that's the way I, I view it. And it's quite possible that we're alien life anyway, if you go back into the, the deep, the, the very depth of uh, what we know so far. And the answer is we don't know, but it's as rational an answer to, you know, how the molecules formed themselves together that they, they were imported onto this planet. But... Well, so, but I, I fail to see what that has to do with the uh, ambition to go to the planet. I, I, okay? It doesn't, it's just interesting. Um, uh, yes, fine, <laughs> fine, absolutely fine. But um, I, I would suggest what? that we need to be a bit more ambitious about what we do if we did meet it. Well, we do is we take some more audience points. Yeah. So, gentleman in the back, um, that's, yeah, that's you. Um, um, and then one down in the front here as well. I actually think we just, we just that recent exchange really illustrates the difference between the inspirational, creative kind of side of human um, uh, behaviour and potential and the negative, fearful, um, conservative side, uh, which, which is... We have both of those things in our collective character. And I think, the, given the choice, I found what Will said about going to Mars, even knowing that you might not come back, the most inspirational thing that's been said, that made me feel excited. You know, the fact that he and other people would be willing to do that, just as in the past, Mallory went to the top of Everest and uh, Christopher Columbus set off not knowing if they were going to fall off the end of the world and all this kind of stuff. You know, that, that, that is the thing which makes us, gives us the right, actually, to go out and explore space. Because we are unique and as far as we know, and until something else is discovered, right, we are unique in this universe. We are uniquely capable not only of doing these things, but imagining them in the first place, imagining things and then putting them into existence. And all of the, the negative arguments, I think, actually undermine that. And I think you, can, you don't have to go very far further than some people have said uh, to hear the argument, well, 
you know, why should we go and screw up another planet, right? We've already screwed up this one. Wouldn't it be better just to stay here and kind of, you know, not risk going out and doing something somewhere else, which then undermines the whole argument for space travel in the first place. So going down that route, that negative route of we are damaging our planet and, you know, we might wipe ourselves out and everything else actually undermines the case for going out into space. It doesn't strengthen it in my mind. Thanks. Um, yeah, down here. Yeah, um, I just wanted to say, coming back to the ethical um, problems that um, can arise, um, I, th- I don't think that ethical problems should stop space exploration, but that doesn't mean that we should take in account all, all that. So what I mean is that um, you can, I, I, I mean, spa- you, 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 you can go to, I mean, space, space exploration can be, it's, there's no doubt about the advantages of it, but I do think that, that we should take in consideration, and if, if, if in the original um, space race, you know, all these problems ar- arose, why not learn from those um, problems and those, um, questions and do it better now if if a new space race actually is actually happening. Um, I think every scientific um, discovery affects uh, philosophy and you know and the way we think. And I think that industrialization we didn't know the effect of industrialization until a lot of time after when Marx started you know uh, writing. So the space um, race is exactly the same. You know. Uh, it, it shouldn't stop, but w- once we get there, then we will see what happens, and then we will try to put, you know, and and that that is not something negative necessarily. I think that also makes um, human consciousness advance and progress. It's a progress not just scientifically, but also um, in knowledge and and philosophy. Thanks. Um, we pass the microphone to the gentleman right beside you. Um, I was wondering. Um, because of all this private investment in, in space um, exploration, how I, I'm guessing all these companies will uh, want to have a share of everything that has been discovered and uh, will want to control with um, you know everything that will they will they have, they've built with their own money. So is is it really fair? What you know are we going to own that, or is just somebody just some few just a few people? Going to own what I think uh, is everybody deserves to to own. Thank you. I think this is the realm of the outer space treaty. Well, I think it is. It's currently. So, I mean, I think this is a really very important point. Very contemporary. I mean, so so currently, the only international rules that govern this is the, is the 1967 outer space treaty. But the, the 67 treaty doesn't really say anything explicit about commercial activities in space because no such activities were envisaged in 1967 when the treaty was formulated. There, there is a strong case for strengthening. Um, um, international legislation in this area, not to prevent um, commercial activities, in fact, in a sense, to uh, help commercial activities by, guarantee, on the one hand, guaranteeing them a return on their investment, but on the other hand, trying to do exactly what you alluded to, to make sure that, uh, it, in some sense, space remains the collective province of mankind, which is the way the Outer Space Treaty is formulated. Um, and currently, the Outer Space Treaty is not fit for purpose in that respect. It's just outdated. So there is a strong uh, case for revisiting it to try and balance the interests of the private sector on the one hand, who will be making most of the investment, and that will give them certain you know, legitimate rights, um, and, and the wider humanity on the, on, on the other. And I, I think currently we need to investigate that. I think the entire audience, though, could be 100% confident 
and the fact that if anybody discovers anything worth having in space, it will be taxed. <laughs> and as a result of that, there will be regulation. There may be an early phase where people, there'll be, there'll be, you know, as happens with anything, there'll be some carpet bagging at the beginning. And luckily, most of the people involved at the moment in investing in space aren't of that mindset as individuals. But there will be a little bit of that will go on if, if it's worth doing. But at the moment, you know, it's, it's going to be a profit sink, not a profit centre for most of these investors. I mean, if you take the case of Virgin Galactic, which I worked on the actual business plan for, it's a business plan based upon space tourism as the first monetizable activity. I people who were prepared, who have a vision of going to space, to put up the deposits to help the money to be raised to build the spaceship. And its long-term plan is, is also as a satellite launching vehicle, um, much cheaper and actually easier way to launch satellites in the future for low Earth orbit, and as a space science vehicle. So these strands of income would be where it would make money. But if you look in the longer term, and where the big issues ethically will come up, will be people who start to mine on the moon, for example. If somebody believes it's worth trying to mine helium-3 and bring it back to Earth, as people speculate may be possible in the future, or mine on Mars, that's where you get into big ethical debates. Because at the moment, the kind of activities that we envisage commercially are really on the whole part of Earth activities. They're mostly about um, launching satellites and making money from that or taking people up into space for either scientific or indeed tourism purposes. And that's basically monetizing an Earth activity that's happening in space. That's not really an ethical issue of any great depth. Whereas this idea of exploiting resources off-planet is where it becomes an ethical issue. And as I say... That's where we can rest assured that the tax person will follow the activity and will regulate it. The Outer Space Act doesn't cover it particularly well in any way. Um, in terms of the legislation in America at the moment, one of the reasons Virgin Galactic and um, uh, SpaceX and uh, Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin and these other new companies are developing in America is because there has been a legislative um, backdrop created in America called the Commercial Space Launch Amendment Act 2004. So for the students who are interested in what's happening in space, it's worth looking at the Commercial Space Launch Amendment Act because it is really the first piece of commercialization legislation, providing also an insurance basis for the uninvolved public. I, if I'm standing in New Mexico under a cactus and a bit of spacecraft falls on me, there is some regulatory outlet for that in the sense that, you know, there will be a liability trail. But that's, again, related to these kind of activities we're talking about in the early phase. When the big stuff happens, as Ian says, there's nothing to cope with it yet, but we needn't worry about that because there will be. Just to give, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. Just to give a bit of background, there are five main treaties that govern outer space, for those of you who don't know, and the only one that hasn't been ratified was the last one, which was specifically set out to deal with these issues. So the fact that it wasn't ratified indicates that this is very much a question that's still up in the air within the United Nations, within individual governments. So, I mean, I don't have, like, a strong opinion on it, but just to acknowledge that it's definitely key right now. I, I just think this um, uh, private-public money uh, sort of discussion um, sort of is in and of itself, you, you've got to put it into the context, but basically the U.S. Uh, space program is being dismantled and sold off, effectively. The launch pads literally are being sold off. Um, and that's because the ambition's gone from uh, the state 
in the US to take the program further, and they're trying to rely on uh, private industry to make something of it. Obviously, we'll try to do that. Um, but I don't think that's a global perspective. I mean, the, the Indians and the Chinese are not doing that. They're doing the opposite. Um, and so what you're seeing is a shift away from one centre uh, of industry to another. And the consequence is, who knows, it will play itself out. Um, but if that leads to further exploration, further uh, um, technological advance, I'm all for it, whoever's doing it. And we just deal with the, the ethical problems that it throws up as we do with everything else, whether it's the Antarctic or, or uh, exploration underneath the North Pole, which uh, the Russians seem to be quite fond of. I agree. Uh, humanity has a right to change its colours. If, if the US is not going to take the next step, then somebody else will. Um, the US hasn't been given any guarantees that superpowers of the past were not given. So if it's going to be China or India, that's fine. Let's just do it. Let's, it needs to be done. So, I mean, one thing I'm slightly interested in is, obviously this is a little bit of a self-selecting group, but you know, nobody so far has kind of went, no, it is a waste of time. Um, everybody seems, in various different ways, positive either about it um, for very esoteric reasons or, or the slightly more uh, practical reasons. Um, yet it's not happened. It's not happening. I mean, um, or it's happening very slowly. Uh, you know, is it just that, you know, the way, we, uh, is, is it just all that the we're, we're strange? There is more happening now than has almost happened at any time in the last 40 years since the moon landing. Yeah. So I think we need... To, the audience needs to understand that. There is actually a lot happening now for the first time in a long time. So when you say it's taken a long time, I think, you know, your point about this big interregnum period, this gap that existed, is absolutely right. But I do feel that there is actually... We're at the end of that. And there's a new phase underway now, both from the point of view of governments and from the point of view of this new phenomenon of the private sector. And by the way, this new phenomenon of the private sector is really new. I mean, the Commercial Space Launch Amendment Act only happened in 2004, and actually in the last 10 years, a lot has happened. And for, I mean, to, the amount of private sector investment in new space launch technologies has been about um, 4 or $5 billion in the past 10 years in total, and, including SpaceX. And um, you're, it's employing about 10,000 people now in the United States, largely. So that is a big change. That's something that you wouldn't have seen during this previous 30 years. So I think a lot's going on at the moment, and whether that leads to anything is the big question. Uh, yeah, right. Um, thanks for that. Uh, so the, the, the lady here at the front with a question. I think I'm just been pondering a little bit, because I'm... I think I'm slightly taken aback by the discussion because even though I take the points that you've just made there in terms of where we are now compared to any time in the last 40 years, I think the previous discussion I just found really intriguing because I don't know much about the subject, so I was just fascinated. And I thought the language you were all using um, or quite a lot of the discussion about the regulatory environment, the, uh, the it's almost like a self-imposed limit... Whereas in my naivety, I thought we hadn't even discovered the end of the universe yet. But it seems that in terms of the discussion, it seems almost like it's constrained as if we're talking about where you put a pe petrol pump or something. You know what I mean? It's almost like you have this scale of extremes where the universe is ever-expanding and we're talking about the possibility of mining on the moon that hasn't even happened yet. 
And I just think that seems a very curious dilemma for me about people I suppose I was wanting to be really inspired by, and it actually isn't quite happening in the way that I thought it might. So I'm just, I'm just intrigued. Thank you. Um, so let's, let's address that or address anything else. Um, we're almost out of time, so this will be any kind of final thoughts as well. Um, Jill, would you like to start? No. No. Uh, <laughs> who would like to start? Who would like to, to jump I'm, in there? I'd just like to say I'm intrigued as well. Um, I never cease to be intrigued by the whole question of space, its commercialisation or not, what, it, what, what that means. But ultimately, the question today is about exploration and it's about people. And I, for goodness sake, hope that we carry on exploring space and that we do one day get to that petrol station at the end of the universe. <laughs> Thanks. Um, anybody else? Yeah, um, I think that the discussion was primarily about what are the next logical steps for humanity. Um, and uh, something that was alluded to earlier, somebody said something about uh, an argument being uh, why are we spending so much up there and not enough down here on poverty in India or whatever. And I th the point I wanted to make there was that we've got to find a balance between focusing on our near-term and long-term problems. Um, and what we consider poverty today is not what poverty was 100 years ago. We, there will always be these disparities that uh, grab our attention for, for, as in the near-term problems. I mean, we, we constantly move the yardsticks for what poverty was uh, and is. So, so I think, I think uh, investment is, in space is, is significantly more important than a lot of people think in terms of, it. as I said before, it's, it's a, an insurance policy for humanity, not just... Uh, one government or one, one country and, and another. I've got my thoughts together now. Um, yeah, I'm sorry we haven't been inspiring. That sort of hurts my feelings a little bit. But um, uh, I would just say, um, personally, I know it's a bit more dry and a bit dull, but I think the international regulatory aspect of this is important, um, and it has been going on for a long time. I don't think that countries or companies um, or indeed individuals should have carte blanche to do whatever they want. And so, although it is a bit dry, I, I, unfortunately, I think it's part, of, it's part of the whole package. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I agree with all, all, the, all the previous speakers. I, I think, I think um, two things. In response to Jill's point, um, I think uh, that the, the, there's an American planetary scientist called Bill Hartman, who's famous in his field, but, but he said that um, considering the future, the future exploration of, of, of space, he basically said that when deciding on space exploration, space development, we, sh we need to do it in a way that um, diffuses tensions on the Earth rather than enhance, makes them worse, because we've already got enough tensions on the Earth, thank you very much. So if we're going to go into space, we should be doing it in a way that reduces international tensions. And this is the, one of the key... I do not think this is a negative thing. It's one of the key geopolitical drivers for space exploration is to try and bring nations together in a common cause. I think that's a positive thing. I think it goes in the direction that Hartman was advocating, and I think we should... Um, we should follow that, but part and parcel, maybe boring, but part and parcel of that is to get the regulatory framework right so that people, when they're setting up gas stations on the moon or whatever, are not fighting over them and they agree to utilise them and cooperate in their use. Um, but really the choice before us, I think, is whether we need a, uh, whether we've got a, an open future for humanity or a closed one. This is the choice. We can stay on this planet uh, forever until we become, uh, well, forever. I hesitate to say until we become extinct, but we will because all animals become extinct. 
escape, and we can stay on this planet until it uh, never go anywhere, and that's a closed future, or we can get out there into the universe, which we, we know some of the benefits it will bring, but, but you're absolutely right, there are enormous numbers of things we can't foresee. And so we'll just have a far... Human, the human race will just have a far richer future if we get out there than if we don't, and I think it really boils down to that. Yeah, I, I totally agree um, that uh, to step off the planet again could lead to a much richer future. But I do think that we can still live on this planet if we want to as well, um, and that we should just ditch the idea that if we don't escape the planet, we're all doomed. I think it's just absolutely the worst way to explain the need for space exploration I can think of. Uh, but it, and, and I also think that um, the idea that you can't do this because it's so expensive um, and so difficult to do is just wrong as well. Um, I think that as we uh, develop ideas, we find new ways of doing things. And we don't know how we're going to solve these problems yet. So I'm, I'm involved with a project with a bunch of school kids st sticking a weather balloon into space and taking a photograph from outer space. That's doable by 12-year-olds. Um, and I think if you look at it like that, who knows what we're capable of doing in the future. And, and your, your point about the one-way trip to Mars... It was Buzz Aldrin who came up with that idea. Um, and, uh, you know, he said, you know, we do it, you go there, you don't come back. Work out how to survive. Uh, that's the only way to learn in that respect. Um, I think it was after a bar in Marrakesh with me in 1994. <laughs> that's another story. It, it's, it doesn't matter. It's the same, same sense of it. But, you know, that, that, that uh, uh, sort of inspirational vision has inspired every little kid who's watched any Disney Toy Story film uh, going. And it's like, it's not the moon, it's infinity and beyond. Just, just a very short point. If I'm not mistaken, I think Mars One had 200,000 applicants for their one-way trip. So I think, yeah, one more, sorry. One, a, one a, more. Nice, <laughs> a nice quote from um, Marina Benjamin. Um, when we dream of space, we dream of transcendence. We dream of what we might become. I like that as a, as a note to finish on. Um, can we thank our panel, please?